It's Friday, October 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. National polls continue to show Joe Biden in the lead over President Trump, but there has been this lingering skepticism about polls since the 2016 election. Weren't they wrong the last time? Chris Kahn, polling editor at Reuters, joins us for what's different and why there's more reason to trust them. Polls are doing a better job of reading Trump's base, there are fewer undecided voters, and there's a bigger focus on state polls. Next, a study out of Britain this week said that people with detectable antibodies for coronavirus fell about 27% over a period of three months over the summer, calling into question how long immunity lasts. But health experts say this is not a cause to worry. Antibodies tend to wane over time naturally. Apoorva Mondavilli, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for what to know about this antibody study. Finally, it's important not to lose sight of our mental health during the pandemic. And as daylight saving time ends, the nights get longer and winter approaches, there could be a collision of pandemic depression and seasonal depression. Experts say it's time to lay the groundwork to help avoid it getting the best of you. Chelsea Ceruzzo, contributor to the Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. ABC Washington Post, they're fakes. Trump, 17 down in Wisconsin. 17. Thank you. Thank you. And they tried it last time four years ago, too, and that didn't work out too well. Joining us now is Chris Kahn, polling editor at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Hey, thank you. We're heading into Election Day. We've been looking at the polls throughout this whole cycle, and Joe Biden seems to be leading nationally, according to most polls. When you get down into state polls, it gets tighter, obviously, in some of the battleground states. But Joe Biden usually has a lead in, in a lot of these One of the big questions that comes up, and I was looking at your Twitter and I kind of laughed at it, you basically said, when anybody talks to you anything about polling, one of the first questions that comes up is like, how can we trust these polls when they were so wrong the last time? So you wrote an article about it, kind of exploring what's different this time. So Chris, tell us a little bit about why we can trust the polls a little bit more this time around. So let's back up to 2016. I cannot say this enough. There are a lot of things that the polls got right, and there's things that the polls got wrong in 2016, and it's worth knowing them if we're talking about how to read them this time around. Nationally, most polls, including our poll with the Reuters-Ipsos poll, showed that Hillary Clinton was ahead in the national popular vote. Our final reading before that election, she was ahead by about two percentage points, and lo and behold, Hillary Clinton won the national popular vote by two percentage points. We were almost dead on with that. The problem was, though, when you start looking at state polls, trying to get a better read on whether it was going to be the Democrat or the Republican in Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, a lot of these states where it is very competitive. And secondly, the demographics are different from state to state. Each state is going to have a slightly different percentage of whites and minorities and educated and uneducated, et cetera. It's much tougher to model a poll for each of those states and to have something that is really bespoke and and is really a true reflection of the people in a very specific area like that. You know, as we all know, Hillary Clinton won the national popular vote, but lost the Electoral College. It was a surprise, especially given the consistent reading that we were getting nationally that year. Fast forward four years, most pollsters, including the Reuters Ipsos poll, uh, has spent quite a bit of time and a lot of resources taking a look at their methodologies, looking at how they're gathering survey respondents, you know, how they're processing the information. And they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how can we better reflect the American public and especially within these states. One improvement that a lot of these 
pollsters have implemented over the past few years is something called an education wake. We realized that a lot of public opinion polls, for whatever reason, just were not doing a very good job of gathering responses from people who do not have a college degree, specifically whites without a college degree. A generation ago, this wouldn't have been a very big issue. Whites without a college degree split fairly evenly between Democrat and Republican. But increasingly, especially in the past few years, whites without a college degree are much, much more leaning towards voting for Republicans, much more supportive of someone like Donald Trump. And that was a big issue in 2016. They were underrepresented in a lot of polls. And so what did we do about it? A lot of polls, like the Reuters Ipsos poll, instituted something called an education wait. That is, they take a look at the latest population statistics in an area. They find out how many people have a college education how many people do not, and they calibrate the respondent pool so that you have the people who do not have a college degree, specifically whites without a college degree, are represented to the level that they should be represented in that poll. And so we're really talking about apples and oranges here. It's a very different instrument that we have now than we had in 2016. Last time there was no incumbent president. It was a choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. This time, President Trump is there, and you're either voting for him or against him kind of thing. So there's fewer undecided voters this time around. I think that most Americans made their minds up about Donald Trump, love him or hate him, years ago, before coronavirus, before the Mueller investigation. They decided long ago how they were going to vote. There are fewer Americans this time around who are undecided. This is something that we have to pay some attention thinking about for a second. I couldn't say this enough then, and I think we should say this now. In 2016, 20% of likely voters all the way up until Election Day were not picking a side. That's one out of every five likely voter was telling us they didn't know. They were undecided between Trump and Clinton. We only found out that basically in the final week before that election that a lot of these undecided voters decided that, you know, they were going to vote and they cast their ballots and a majority of them decided to lean towards voting for Trump over Clinton. And that really was the story of the election, especially in these key battleground states that Trump won by you know a percentage point or less. This time around, it is much different. We're only seeing about 6 to 7% of likely voters say that they're undecided or possibly thinking about a, a third party candidate. It's much, much smaller. And so because of that, there is just less wiggle room here. Right now, we're looking at about a 10 percentage point leap for Biden over Trump. He already has more than 50%. And it's just going to be much harder for Trump to make up that ground, especially in the national poll. And the last big thing that's different this time around, there's a bigger focus on state polls. You mentioned in your article, Reuters is running 36 polls in six battleground states this year, just to kind of get as much information as we can. And we're looking at tight races in Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, And Joe Biden maintains a lead in other places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. We only did a handful of state polls in 2016. We've greatly expanded that. There's a tremendous amount of resources that Reuters is expending and and other outlets are expending to get more information from these battleground states. You can see it if you go on to a lot of news sites, a lot of these polling aggregators. They display all of the polling that you can look at. You can find polls in Alaska, Montana, a lot of places that there really wasn't a whole lot of information in 2016. And while these polls, it doesn't necessarily increase the accuracy, it does give you a lot more data to look at. You can check for inconsistencies. You can check for public opinion over a longer time frame. It really helps you get a better picture of you know public opinion in those locations. Chris Kahn, polling editor at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. 
people who are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19, they do mount some level of an immune response. And this is measured through the antibody response, whether these are neutralizing antibodies, and we're learning quite a lot about a T-cell response, um, which are very difficult studies to carry out. Uh, what we don't know is how, how strong that protection is and for how long that protection will last. Joining us now is Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Apoorva. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about this English study that we found out about earlier this week that showed that the number of people that had COVID-19 antibodies declined over a period of time, over the summer that they were studying this. And, uh, you know, it calls into questions about long-lasting immunity from further infection. It's something that we haven't been able to really pinpoint yet. Uh, you know, how long are you immune from getting COVID-19 after you recover from it? But a lot of experts said these worries are overblown. This is actually something that happens all the time when we recover. Antibodies tend to go away a little bit. And there's other mechanisms in the body that keep our hopes of not being reinfected alive. So, Apoorva, tell us a little bit more about what we know about this study and then what the experts are saying about it. First, I want to say, you know, what you said is absolutely right, that the study is not something to worry about. So let's start from there. These British researchers have been trying to figure out how many people in the population are exposed to the virus. And so they've been sending out periodically these antibody tests because the presence of antibodies tells you if somebody's been exposed to the virus and been infected, even if they didn't have symptoms. So they did that a few months ago and they've done it three times over the course of many months. And what they found is that from the first time they did it to this last one in September, the percent of people who tested positive for antibodies dropped from 6% to 4.8%. And that works out to something like a 27% drop. So that is what got reported and got everybody worried because it read like a third of people are losing their antibodies. First of all, this is a population-based study. So it wasn't the same people. So they weren't looking at some set of people three months ago and then going back to those same people and seeing that they no longer had antibodies. This is just a snapshot of people three months ago a new snapshot now. So that aside, it's also not very surprising that over time, people would lose some antibodies. And that's because when your body first encounters a virus or a bacterium, it makes antibodies because, you know, the infection is new and it needs all these antibodies to kind of fight the virus. But once the, that immediate infection is gone, that those huge levels of antibodies that are produced have to go back down just as a matter of sort of physical space, even in your blood, you can't possibly carry high levels of antibodies to every single virus your body has seen. COVID is not the only thing you're going to fight for the remainder of your life, basically. That's right. And you've probably seen, you know, dozens and dozens of rhinoviruses and other seasonal cold coronaviruses, common cold viruses, measles, God knows what you've been exposed to, right? All of those produce antibodies. And so your blood just can't have high levels of all of those. So what happens always is that those levels come back down after the initial infection, and they kind of go to some sort of steady state. And there are these memory B cells, they're called it. B cells are the cells that make the antibodies. And some small number of them are these memory cells. They basically remember what the virus looks like. And if you ever see that virus again, those memory B cells can produce antibodies pretty quickly within a matter of hours. So there's no need to have antibodies actually in your blood because those B cells can make them again if you need them. And that's something that the study really didn't show. They didn't look at, do these people still have immune memory? 
And also there are other cells called T immune cells that can also fight the virus. There are T memory cells, just like there are B memory cells. There are T cells that can actually destroy the virus. There's all kinds of basically immune mechanisms at play. We just happen to always end up talking about antibodies because they're the easiest things to measure, but they're far from the only things that your body has. Yeah. One of the other interesting things about this study is you mentioned how the government was sending people these tests to administer themselves. They were finger prick tests. They weren't blood draw tests or anything, something that was done in the lab. So the possibility that it could have missed somebody with lower antibodies, they might have still had some, maybe just not at such high levels. And then they did also say that there might have been something about asymptomatic people. Maybe they didn't have as high an antibody count as somebody who had the disease more severely. We know that people make all different levels of antibodies, just like they're all different kinds of people. Everybody's immune response is just a little bit different. Some people make a ton of antibodies, and that's usually the case if they've been really severely sick. Makes sense, right? You have really severe symptoms, or your body's fighting really hard, so you have a lot of antibodies. But if you just had really mild symptoms, you may not have had that many antibodies to begin with. And so, you know, when you see that decrease that I was saying earlier is basically normal, you may go below the level that this sort of crude test can pick up. You know, these tests are great for looking at population-wide prevalence, but in any one person, they can actually miss low levels of antibodies. The sensitivity is something like 84%, which means in 100 people who have antibodies, it would miss 16 people. So it's not crazy good, let's say. (laughs) Aporva Mandavili, reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Because more people are experiencing these heightened levels of depressive symptoms, as well as suicidal ideation, um, more people might feel another swing of depressive symptoms as we head into the winter months. Joining us now is Chelsea Ceruzzo, contributor to The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Chelsea. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about mental health with regards to the pandemic. Obviously, we're trying to keep our physical health in tip-top shape, but mental health has been an ongoing thing throughout the pandemic. People on lockdown, not being able to do their normal activities. There has been an uptick in people showing depressive symptoms throughout all of this. And right now, what we're coming into, that we're coming into the winter time. you know, it's going to get darker earlier, it's going to be darker outside, the weather changes, all that stuff. There's something called seasonal affective disorder, where it's just a different type of depression when it gets colder and uh, and people are less likely to go outside they show depressive symptoms so health experts are worried about this kind of two coming together pandemic depression and then seasonal depression so chelsea tell us a little bit about what health experts are are worried about this time like you said some early studies have shown that more people are reporting that they're experiencing depressive symptoms during the pandemic at the same time as we're headed into the winter months Seasonal depression, that depression you feel when there's less light, it's harder to get outside. Only a small percentage of the U.S. experiences seasonal depression. But experts are worried that because more people are experiencing these heightened levels of depressive symptoms, as well as suicidal ideation, um, more people might feel another swing of depressive symptoms as we head into the winter months, especially You know, that means it's going to be harder to get outside and see people. You know, in the summertime, it was much easier to see people at a safe distance because we were able to get outside. So there's that added layer of difficulty in socializing and not isolating yourself as we head into the winter months during the pandemic. There was a recent survey that said that U.S. adults were reporting levels of depressive symptoms more than three times higher 
during the pandemic than before it. So just goes to show how people have been faring throughout the pandemic and the shutdowns and all of that. And one of the things that people think is that, you know, there's a lot of overlap between these two, the pandemic depression and seasonal depression. It might be people that experience clinical depression as well, just kind of regularly and all these overlaps. So that's why there's a worry and and, uh, experts are saying, start getting prepared for this. You start laying the groundwork to help avoid some of this. Absolutely. That's exactly what they were saying. If you can recognize now that you might be a person at risk for experiencing heightened depressive symptoms during the winter time, start thinking about it now. You know, at the moment where you're seeing some better days before your worst day. So if you can prepare now, if you get to that point, unfortunately, you've already laid the groundwork to help yourself then. So some of the health experts that you spoke to started giving up some tips. One of those was that basically start lining things up, getting things ready, get your medication ready, lifelines to your therapist, things like that. Start laying that groundwork. Yeah, that was absolutely one of them. Um, you know, if today is okay, but winter may be hard, lay the groundwork, said the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. You know, that might include making sure you have your medications if you use medication in case it's harder to get to your pharmacy. Um, if you have a therapist, make sure you're scheduled through the winter with them. If you like to exercise, if you're able to exercise indoors, sort of set up your space that that's doable for you. Knowing your triggers is another one. You know, some part of this difficulty is, you know, when people are going through these depressive states, it's, it's really hard to mobilize. But really, you have to go that extra step to help yourself in these situations. And knowing your triggers is one of those as well. One person I spoke to, her name was Lindsay. She told me about her experiences with depression. And um, one of the things that happened to her while she was in the pandemic, during the pandemic, uh, as we are now, she realized that she was experiencing a manic episode and eventually had a complete depressive episode as a result, learned she had bipolar disorder and entered a treatment program. And she learned in that treatment program, if she knew what the triggers were as she headed into a depressive episode, she knew when to get help. So for her, that was a lack of personal hygiene. And that was actually a pretty common thing. Experts told me that if you're not taking care of your personal hygiene, that could be a sign that you are headed into a depressive episode and you should start trying to get help. Another one is people have seen these kind of lamps that mimic sunlight or even just saying, you know, there's going to be points of darkness throughout the day. Try to at least do some work or get out during that sunlight. The light boxes or the SAD lamps, I asked a lot of experts, are those legit? And they said, yes, they are a very specific kind of lamp. So when you look them up, look up light box or SAD lamps, those mimic the outdoor light. If you can spend a few minutes in the morning while you're drinking your coffee in front of one, it can sort of energize you for the day, experts told me, especially if it's harder to get outside or you live in an area where it gets quite gloomy in the wintertime, those can be really beneficial. Another big one that we've seen really throughout the course of the pandemic is the rise of telehealth, virtual healthcare. You know, it's making it really accessible to a lot of people. And this is another tool for people that might be experiencing this type of depression to reach out and to continue to keep those appointments with your therapist and all. Telehealth has really revolutionized healthcare, and we can expect to see it a lot going forward. Therapists right now are able to use Zoom or use different types of video apps to talk with you you know, without having to see them in person and putting yourself at risk, that's very possible. And another thing, too, as experts told me, if you are feeling suicidal thoughts, absolutely reach out to somebody. The Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Always make sure you have that number somewhere. It's really important for you and for your friends. If you are feeling like you want to hurt yourself, please call that number. Chelsea Ceruzzo, contributor to The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.